Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. My name is Tom Salemi. Well, last week's OIS at Askers was an enormous success. Uh, we saw our biggest audience yet at an OIS at Askers. More than 400 surgeons, investors, entrepreneurs, and executives packed the ballroom at the San Diego Bayfront Hilton to hear a day full of in-depth clinical discussion. OIS co-chair Bill Link led the day off with a state of innovation funding address. In it, he presented proof of the existence of an OIS effect on startup companies. He noted that of the 10 ophthalmology companies that have gone public recently, nine of them presented at an OIS. We had some very, very deep dives on areas like MIGS and pressure reduction and presbyopia, as well as drug delivery. And the day ended with a Masters of the Universe panel, featuring the heads of Valiant, Zeiss, AMO, and Alcon. We'll be bringing you the content from this conference in coming weeks, but today we hope you'll enjoy a very special OIS podcast. I did this one right on stage. I sat down with Bill Link, a notable entrepreneur, Andy Corley, and Matt Chapin, Senior Vice President of Corporate Development at Aura, to discuss how the best innovation is or is not getting funded today. We also talked about some alternative forms of financing for startups, and we hit upon private pay, which is impacting innovation in, uh, in some different ways. Bill Link donned his uh, chairman's hat to talk about Alpheon, a company in which he has invested personally. The first question to Bill refers back to an interview he had done with Dr. Dick Lindstrom. Dr. Lindstrom had just been awarded our Ophthalmology Lifetime Innovator Award, and he earned a very well-deserved standing ovation from the crowd. In that interview, Bill had just talked about when he had tried to initially raise money from Dr. Lindstrom. So I hope you enjoyed this week's glimpse into OIS at Askers. My name is Tom Salemi. I'm the content director uh, for OIS, which means uh, I do a lot of writing, and I'm very happy to be doing a lot of podcasting. If you haven't checked out the OIS podcast, I invite you to do so. Uh, I'm not going to tell you where to go on the Apple uh, store, but we do have a channel there. But just go to OIS.net. There's a podcast tab. Click on it. We've done a couple of dozen interviews. Uh, a lot of the folks in this room, a lot of the folks who have been on this podium, and uh, please give a listen. And also, consider yourself invited to be part of the podcast. We created it for the community that's in this room. We wanted to sort of keep in touch with you folks throughout the year. Uh, I'm a journalist by training, so I'm eager to find new and interesting stories uh, and new people to have up in the podium. So please give a listen and uh, say hello to me and send me an email and uh, present any ideas for a podcast. And to kind of give you a flavor of what the podcasts are like, we're kind of going to uh, make this our OIS podcast for next week. This is a surprise to the folks. I'm sure they're all very, very thrilled at this, although Bill's been on it once or twice. And Andy, you turned me down, so you just got Shanghai, buddy. <laughs> so uh, it's going to be just like the podcast at home, except I'm not wearing a Red Sox shirt and jeans. I actually got dressed up for this, and my dog isn't growling at me from the back, so... What we're going to do is just, uh, we got some great discussion points earlier this morning, uh, some high-level stuff on financing, some, high le some mentions of, of private pay uh, and the importance that that's having on ophthalmology, and we just want to take this opportunity to kind of delve a little deeper in those areas and also pursue what other opportunities there are for financing uh, new startups and, and new ventures. So 
I'll start with Bill since you gave us the, uh, the high altitude view of, of venture capital earlier. If you look at the charts and you look at the numbers and the bars and all that, they look pretty good compared to some years past. I mean, the, the dollars are there, yet there's a real sense that the dollars aren't there for the little guy who has this idea. So my question to you is if, if that Bill Link who was sweating in Dick Lynch's uh, living room a few decades ago hopped in his DeLorean, drove up to your house and was waiting for you when I got home after OIS and said, where do I find money for this great idea? What, what would you tell him? Well, it, as we saw, at the, at the high level, capital is available and it's being invested for sure in the healthcare space overall. It tends to be biased for, uh, toward uh, biopharma, for sure, uh, because biopharma is being rewarded more robustly, uh, both in terms of exits, uh, earlier exits at the corporate level, as well as the IPO side. So the tougher area uh, to get financing is in the device space, and sometimes drug delivery, because guess what, it's a, a device combination with, with some kind of an active agent. And so where I think I see some struggle, you know, firsthand, uh, is, is in that space. And I might give you the example that we uh, at Versant raised our fifth fund recently. And the feedback we got from the investors that invest in venture firms, okay, was they wanted to see a, more sh a stronger shift to biopharma. Uh, and, let, and if we, and as we do medical device, and we have a, maybe one of the better track records in the medical device area, they wanted to see it later, so less risk uh, in the device space. So it's, it's really an evolving um, uh, environment. And, you know, so that's kind of the perspective I, I see, that thankfully, you know, there have been enough exits, both IPO and other exits, to, to attract capital broadly. But then as you segment within the sector, it, there's a real differentiation. So would you turn young Bill Link down and, and send him away? Yep. <laughs> Would you, would you at least give him Andy's card and maybe say Andy maybe could, could raise Yeah, I'd money. send him to Andy Corley. <laughs> Andy has money, and he's an easy target. Andy, so, so young Bill Link comes over to your house and says, that, that other Bill Link's mean, won't give me any money. What do you tell him? Well, every time I've asked Bill for money, he neutralized me by making a counter-request for money right back to me, so it worked out pretty well. No, I, I, I have to uh, say that if you talk to the little startup guy who's one guy in an idea in a university, there's never an easy time to raise money. This is a very difficult task to persuade very sophisticated people to give you money for an idea, for a vision that only you and maybe one or two other people really possess. So that's always a very difficult thing, and that's, that just is pure hard work and passion and working the list. I think what I've noticed has changed dramatically in the activities at the fundraising level is how you now have to shape your financial instrument to meet the needs of the investor. For instance, um, Bill likes the term uh, uh, outsourced R&D. I think he popularized that. So if you've got an idea that fits right into a company's strategy, well, then you're going to build a financial instrument that will accommodate that, make sense for the company, a bill to buy, an earn out, a transition type uh, structured deal into that. If you're on a mission from God to start the world's greatest company, then you're going to build an instrument that you need for that. And then if you're 
really lonely like me most of the time, you're going to go beg all your friends and family to give you a little money to get the idea started. But I think uh, we used to do a more one size of financial instrument fits all. I think now for entrepreneurs, you need to be very creative and think about what instruments you're going to build for your ultimate suitor from the beginning. Is, is raising money necessarily the answer? Matt, Matt Chapin, you're with, with Aura. Uh, you have a lot of buildings come to you with ideas. Uh, how, how, do they, how are you able to help them? You may not have money for them, but you'll have some, some other help. So, um, and, and Bill had some nice slides over this morning showing all the uh, exciting deals and transactions in the field on the, the VC side and the pharma side. Um, the, uh, we, we many times have entrepreneurs and small startups coming to us, uh, though, that don't fit the profile of what the investors are looking for. Uh, it might be too early, just not have the right data set for the VCs to get in or the pharma. Um, and Andy, to your point about um, you know, matching the investments to the investors and, and the type of deal. Um, so, Aura has been a CRO in the space for uh, about 35 years now. Uh, our business model has evolved over the years to be more creative with uh, entrepreneurs and startups um, uh, and, and all of our clients. And, um, and we do uh, help them match the type of investment that, um, that, that fits them. And, and that, uh, in some cases, uh, they might have VCs that um, uh, they don't want to give up additional equity. Um, um, and, and a royalty you know, can be introduced um, to help move them forward. In some cases, a client might have uh, royalties that they're paying out already on technologies and have royalty stacking. Um, so um, maybe not introducing an additional royalty, but milestones or some other revenue sharing model or equity uh, in those cases um, uh, fits. So uh, it's not an either or. I think it's uh, certainly there's cases and recent examples with clients where they've had VC investments, they've had a pharma involved, um, and Aura has come in as a CRO partner um, uh, with uh, in-kind investments, leveraging our internal capabilities. And you mentioned the building a company sort of, or an idea around with, with an end game in mind. This this whole, this strategic has a hole, and I'm going to fill that hole. Has that always been the case, or is that really a new way of innovating? And is it really innovation if you sort of you're not really creating something from scratch? You're you're, you're creating something to a, a square peg to fit in a square hole. Is that, is that a different type of innovation that's gone on in the past? And Bill, you can address this too. Is it, it's more made to order, kind of customized yeah, innovation. I mean, uh, let's, let's think about you're the uh, CEO of ABC Corporation, and you've got uh, $10 billion, $12 billion revenue, um, uh, revenue run per year. So how do you grow? You've got to grow 8 to 10%. How do you grow? A billion dollars a year and you're the CEO and your job is growth so our job as entrepreneurs is to help that guy get his growth both from his internal growth programs and outsource growth so I just think of a let's pick a disease let's pick diabetes for instance is the CEO it's our job as entrepreneurs to convince him that if he makes bets in five different startups all targeting a new fix for diabetes that that investment's going to turn out better for him than leaving that cash on the balance sheet or trying to do a $500 million R&D project internally. If he pay, places $500 million bets with startups, he's got five shots on gold to get that growth that he needs to, to meet his number. If, if he just does an internal project, he's got all 500 committed to you know, his internal 
uh, effort, and we know the efficacy of that has been somewhat challenged in recently in the market. And, and maybe we are having a, a more of a device discussion. Uh, I'm device-centric myself, but if, if you look at the, the uh, investors that you had on your slides this morning, those making new investments in biotech, uh, a lot of them were, were, most of them were venture firms. I mean, and firms we know, Orbamid, Atlas, uh, Novo, NEA, few strategics, uh, Merck, MS Ventures, SR1, uh, JJDC. On the, on the device side, NEA was number one, which was actually very interesting, and, and kudos to them for raising their fund and still doing uh, new investments. But you also had some, I, guess, I don't know how we would classify them, maybe they're micro-ventures now, I think is the term, but you had uh, Biostar and, of course, uh, Emergence, Life Sciences Angels. So I guess my, my long question, my long-winded question is, uh, on the device side, are we seeing a class of institutionalized, institutionalized investors, not institutional investors, but organized investors who are able to take over for the versions who have to, for per order of their LPs, have to migrate upstream? Well, I think, I think uh, it happens, right? It, when there's, a, when there's a, an opening like that or an underserved segment, uh, as long as the, um, the metrics are powerful enough, capital can be raised, and it may come, come from different sources. That's part of the kind of the thinking of, of talking about alternative uh, sources. And we see more uh, small firms, you know, that, are, that aren't multi-hundred million dollar funds, but maybe a 50 or 40 or 75 million dollar fund, and they're happy to find um, an investment that's in the two to five million dollar range. You know, when some of us are managing 300 to 500 million dollar funds, we don't have the bandwidth to put a small amount of capital to work. So when we lock arms and team up, we've got to have the opportunity to get, you know, 10 to 20 million dollars to work. And so that means that there are some very worthy projects and worthy people that don't fit our model. Doesn't mean they're right or wrong, it's just the lack of fit. And that's why I think the market, you know, corrects itself, if you will, and takes advantage of that. So this is just the life cycle of, of, of VC. You know, some, some people, some trees get bigger and they make room for smaller trees to grow. Uh, so yes or no, there is sufficient capital for new early stage innovative ideas right now. If they're powerful with great people serving an unmet need, yes. Do you agree? I agree. I agree. I think the search for that and what Bill just mentioned is, you know, there's the normal cast of characters, and now you get into that smaller range, the two, $5 million investments that won't move the needle in many firms. And they're worthy ideas, big markets that can be approached like that. And as entrepreneurs, we have to be more creative, more convertible notes, more... Uh, smaller funds. You have to search the grounds just to find the money for those types of ideas. Matt, how does Aura react to this change in, in the VC landscape? Is it, has it altered the way that you've done business? Because uh, if, you're, if you're working with a, a client and you're giving them services in exchange for equity, you'd like to know that there's someone who's going to fund that, that idea further down the road, so whatever you've helped create actually will... will exit at some point or, or find life and, and go commercial. So there's, um, I'd say two approaches that 
uh, we look at, um, you know, obviously looking at it as a pure financial investment. Um, and if there's a client that comes to us and, and they look at, uh, you know, Aura, how can you help um, providing kind services to, to finance us uh, and compare that to what they can get from a VC or another um, uh, investor, uh, it comes down to simple modeling and, and, and they can choose uh, what fits best for them. Um, in other cases, there's clients that, uh, or projects that just won't move forward. Um, and um, we uh, um, do what we can to be creative um, and um, either point them in the right direction or, or uh, move them forward with, with in-kind services or, uh, or, or, in some cases, direct investments. Um, the, uh, from our perspective, we also have the services as uh, one key component of how we're making decisions around investments. Um, and so uh, helping a, a company move forward, what does that mean to Aura as a service provider in the future uh, for future work, um, for additional projects that we can be involved in, uh, or how does an investment in one project help us build internal capabilities uh, or, or expertise in a, in a new area? So I, I think having the service hat on uh, adds a different uh, look to the types of investments we can make and how we get into it. And does it create a, an investment? a greater investment opportunity for you since there's a, a need for capital, a greater need for capital? It certainly does. I, the, the, the amount of deal flow and, and uh, opportunities have been coming to us uh, over, over the years, and uh, uh, um, it, it is steadily increasing. And um, the, the, the number of entrepreneurs with, uh, with, with new, uh, new concepts uh, whether it's a device or, or a drug or, or repurposing a, a drug from another area uh, or a diagnostic, and they, uh, it, it, is, it is definitely increasing. And, and there's, a, I think, a whole group of young new entrepreneurs that maybe are new to this the development side of it. Um, so helping them work through the IP, um, de developing a target product profile that ultimately the pharma companies would like to see. Um, what are the regulatory issues? Uh, uh, helping with introductions, you know, through the networks that we have and, and networks that we look to grow. Um, so I think helping these young entrepreneurs, you know, put the pieces together. Um, and, and whether we make an investment or service in kind or cash or not, I, I think at least uh, we, we feel it's an obligation of our company to help um, some of these, these young entrepreneurs and startups uh, at least uh, move the ball downfield in some manner. This is kind of an interesting societal observation. We're both East Coast guys, and we're kind of leaning up in little tents on the chairs, and you guys have mastered the, the lean back, which i got to work on, I think. Actually, yeah, you got to watch that East Coast stuff. Yeah, we actually live about two miles from each other, we found out once we got here. so We live about 500, no. <laughs> I bet your houses are nicer than mine, but... but uh, uh, Boy, I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. All right, that's it. No more podcast. Call it off. It's a stupid idea. Um, Andy, other than uh, other sources of capital we've talked about uh, would be family foundations. Um, is that an area that's growing or, or have we... Sorry, I'm still laughing at you. Is that an area that's growing, or is, are we seeing contraction there, too, as we've seen in, in some institutional areas? I, I find the family office to be a very attractive uh, gap filler for the uh, medical device venture uh, marketplace decline. I, I just think uh, 
if you're in a series A, B, or C, and you're not working a long list of family offices, you're going to miss a great opportunity. Mm -hmm. They have very, very smart people, very well trained, look just like a VC, you know, walk like a VC, but they're much more reasonable than VCs. Just kidding, Bill. How are their houses? <laughs> and, and Bill, um, you know, I'd comment on that as well. Yeah, and I, I see the, the family offices as very important to the overall, you know, resourcing of, of innovation. And, in a, again, just telling a little bit of a story for Versant, when we went out to raise Versant 5, it was harder for us than it ever had been. And we ended up um, uh, moving from uh, the classic type of investor, limited partner, in our fund to needing to look for other sources of, uh, of capital that had both the capital uh, and the perspective and the patience for venture investing. And we found that family offices were a, a great resource. And so we have, um, I, don't, I won't say the number, but percentage-wise, I think we've got a sizable percentage now of family offices in the Versant 5 fund. And that's fresh and interesting. And they send us signals they want to be considered as a co-investor. So they're not only putting some capital to work in a classic path with a venture fund, but they're also saying, hey, think about us in this category, this size, et cetera. So I think they, they play a very appropriate, um, deserved role in, in the overall resourcing. The, the ecosystem, the, the venture medical device, really has changed. I mean, you've got this perfection of the convertible notes at the very beginning. You've got uh, smaller funds and the classic funds at Series A, B, and C. You've got family offices competing for that space. And on ideas that align with the corporate strategy dead, dead on, you've got corporate uh, players. So when I started, it was, you know, you went from venture office to venture office. And now it's quite a, it's quite a different look and feel to how you navigate the way to keep your companies funded and moving forward. Can you say that? It, it, just in a, another comment makes me think, as we're talking about family offices, um, we, we've seen some recent examples of uh, uh, international, regional pharma companies, uh, small emerging companies uh, focused on ophthalmology or, or across diseases that are family-owned, uh, looking to grow, um, and where uh, early startups or entrepreneurs looking to bring in some funding, exchanging regional rights, um, and, and maybe that's an exchange for cash, maybe it's an exchange for um, having supplies manufactured or formulation, um, but uh, we, we've definitely seen some uh, uh, families in, in Europe and Asia uh, become involved in early stage products like that. We're about half through the podcast, so this is where I would say, and we'll be right back after these messages. Join the innovators, entrepreneurs, and investors who are changing healthcare at MedTech Investing Conference on May 6th in Minneapolis. The premier event in MedTech Investing will bring together the industry's investors, entrepreneurs, strategics, and regulatory professionals in one of the country's richest MedTech communities, Minneapolis. This must-attend conference will leave attendees with the insights and connections necessary to find their own sure path to success. To register for the MedTech Investing Conference, go to www.medtechconference.com. And we're back. We've been talking about uh, the, the financing part. I promised we'd talk about private pay before as well. Uh, how do, as an investor, how do you sort of 
how difficult it is it to take into account private pay? I mean, it's easier to see what a reimbursement is, to know, you know, what hospitals charge for X and Y and where your device can fit into this. Is measuring the financial uh, impact of private pay more difficult when starting with a very early stage product? Well, I mean, this is one of the things you have to be absolutely crystal clear about to a potential investor, and that's who's going to buy this and how are they going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. There have been a lot of good technologies that got lost in that shuffle. Um, so I think it's uh, from day one, uh, you need to have absolute clarity if your product's private, is it a reimbursed product, or is it a hybrid? and uh, be ready to go into great detail with potential investors because that's right where they, they go. I mean, at the end of the day, technology's fun. It's a lot of fun to talk about, and it's fascinating to watch all the great ideas that come up here. But somebody sitting there saying, who's going to pay for it, right? And that's the acid test. You can do all the level A science you want to, but if you can't sell it and make a customer happy at the end of the day, you don't have technology. So my clear direction is to pay a lot of attention to that that one point. And, you know, private pay, you know, Andy helped open the door uh, for private pay in ophthalmology and the whole uh, refractive surgery uh, development, which goes back now a couple of decades, where we started to morph from reimbursed, third-party reimbursed, to private pay. And so ophthalmology is a sector that's had uh, a lot of experience and exposure to private pay, and it takes a while to figure it out, both at the physician level, the, the patient level, but at the company level. When we were building Chiron Vision together, Andy and I and a, a few other wonderful people, we were developing the refractive surgery market. I can't say the number of times that we would have an ophthalmologist to stare us in the, in the eye and say, well, no, it's got to, you know, what insurance company is going to pay for it. So the DNA at that time was third-party reimbursement. It took a decade, more or less, to kind of get the shift over to having, uh, seeing that private pay can be powerful. You know, it's, it's, it's pure in a way because it's got to be better for the patient and better for the doc before we do well. And when there's third-party reimbursement, that it's less efficient, it's less direct. It's got to save somebody money and be okay for the patient and okay for the doc, right? And, but a lot of the decision influencing moves away from the physician and the patient uh, to the third-party pay powerful entities. Again, highly skilled, they're on a mission, they're doing the right thing for themselves, but it's, it just changes the balance. You'll have to take off your, your Versin hat now and put on your, your chairman hat of, of Alfion. You're involved with Alfion, and that's your investment. It's not a Versin investment. Uh, how is that? Uh, take a moment to tell us how Alfion works, and, and that's an effort that is focused entirely on, on private pay, correct? Yeah, so Alfion is a lifestyle company that's focused on private pay, self-pay, uh, that, again, benefits the patient, no kidding, benefits the doc and then the company will do well and it's it's a pure play in that regard where Alfion especially in the United States is specifically focused on private pay only and don't have third-party reimbursement that uh, 
frees up the relationship and enables a more intimate relationship with the physician, customer, potential customer. And so <clears throat> this was Robert Grant's uh, disruptive idea a few years ago. It's been refined and iterated, and now it's a real company. And so Alfion, to me, it's exciting because one of the the hopes that I had is that maybe I could play a small role with that team in building another leader in this space and maybe having a different channel uh, to uh, to the physician and to the patient. So again, those those fundamentals that I mentioned before are core to the Alfion uh, Alfion mission. Robert Grant was a guest on the podcast, by the way. Uh, but it's it's a, a unique company in that you use social media to interact with the physicians to get their input on what products you should be uh, licensing or acquiring. And they also, not all, but many invest uh, in the company as well, and that capital is used in addition to venture capital that's raised to acquire these products for development. In in other sectors, uh, physician-owned groups that distributed things have run into some problem and some concerns with oversight. Is it a worry of yours that, that Alfion uh, could create some the same uh, perceptions of conflict that we've seen in orthopedics and other sectors where physicians have taken direct ownership in a company that's selling devices? You know, it's a very important issue that you have to pay entire attention to and do, do the work very fundamentally well to make sure that doesn't happen. People can worry about it, but if you do it uh, really well, and have the, the proper relationship. You know, oversight should come from our heart and our conscience, not from third parties. We ought to do the right thing, you know, for the right reasons. And that's kind of, I think, fundamental to the, the, the Alfion model. It's not uh, in a cumbersome way overlaid by third party, you know, compliance regulations. It's internally uh, developed. But it has to be done well. Often when uh, thoughtful people hear the idea at first they're worried about conflict and that's something that that uh, Alfion and uh, uh, the parent company uh, Strasby Crown pay a lot of attention to have done beautifully thorough expert work to make sure that that's uh, that's uh, just an initial perception not an actual problem is there is there a concern you could, you could I'll, I'm a reporter so I'll, I on the negative, so I apologize. You're a reporter? I was, yeah. yeah. Now I'm a content director. It pays a little better. Content director. <laughs> <laughs> Laugh? It's a real title. Um, <laughs> um, it, there's a, the, the perceived conflict in, in orthopedics. The concern was uh, to, to whether or not the patients would, would be getting, whether a, a surgeon would, would only use a device that they had a stake in. Um, how do you dispel that concern with Alfion? Well, the, you know, for example, that there are round numbers about 250 certified uh, uh, physicians in several specialties that have made an investment, okay, into uh, the combined business of Strasby Crown and Alfion. They are in no way required in any way to be a customer. Okay. They can choose to be a customer. They also have the say in what products and services are provided to the uh, community. 
And so there's actually a, a very um, efficient process that's been established where the, the board of certified investors, the docs, are those, uh, are, they review products and technologies that are under consideration to be either acquired or distributed by, by Alfion. And if, if they don't have clear support and alignment around that, the team moves on. If the, if the docs say, best in class, we need it, let's, let's get access to that, then the business team tries to put together the business deal to access products and technology to bring through that channel. And how are you able to, I would assume that Alfion's not a, a research company. It's not going to work on er, really early stage products. You're looking for products that are late stage and have great commercial upside, I assume. I'm, those are pretty, in pretty high demand. How, how do you find those type of products to, to, to fill Alfion's pipeline? Well, you know, it's been, this is a, another surprise, Tom, to me, that if you'd asked me a couple of years ago how hard it would be to find those products. I, I, would, I was worried, you know, that it might be hard, but candidly with this partnership model uh, that uh, Alfion has, we found that we have lots of uh, entrepreneurs and companies and um, uh, international distributors and so forth that want to team up with Alfion. So we're actually in a surprisingly strong position where we're um, not picking and choosing, but we're having access to uh, even more products and technologies that I thought would be the case a while back. And does, does the idea of physician ownership of a dis distribution channel uh, impact how other companies could sell a product? If you're, if you're forecasting ahead, do you, are you extra worried that, well, this, this product will have a leg up because physicians have a stake in the company that distributes it. Does it sort of change the game in looking forward for new technologies and, and measuring their market potential? You're asking me that? Yeah, sure. Okay. Let's <laughs> see what we can come up with here. Um, first of all, I, I like the sound of free enterprise, right? Uh, I, I think the, um, the concern that industry would have about an Alfion distributed product is that the, there'll be a built-in bias um, for that product. Well, what's wrong with that? I mean, we're all out there trying to, you know, trying to get a built-in bias for our products. So I, I like the idea of free enterprise. I think the one thing that um, our friends at Alfion will have to be extraordinarily careful about is that they are completely competitive, and knowing them, I know they will be. So I'm not concerned about that. But it is an advantage. It is a very clever way. And for those of us that have been in the space for a very long time, we have seen this in the 80s. This is how the intraocular lens business was actually built, is that the, most of the companies were physician-owned and or had high share ownership among the membership. And it was a very, very productive and competitive time. Uh, there was no shortage of competition as a result of this type of activity. So I don't have that fear personally. Matt, how does, how does Aura look at private pay opportunities and, and what, opportunity, what potential do you see there? I, I think Alfion is a, a, a good example of, um, again, how different pieces can come together with the, uh, the investors from, the investments from physicians. Uh, Bill, you mentioned the uh, international distributors. So a good, a good example, again, how 
um, financing can come from multiple areas, um, and uh, and also as as a new outlet for uh, uh, innovation coming from from entrepreneurs. Um, I, I think it it emphasizes. Uh, what we say a lot is beginning with the end of the mind and, and developing an early target product profile. Um, I mean, everybody knows that going into development, but it's good to remind yourself because um, as you think about products um, going through um, you know, that type of uh, approach, um, you know, how's this going to sit in the market? Um, what's, the, what's the dosing? What's the frequency? Um, how's, it, how's it fitting into the treatment landscape? So I think it just, um, uh, from our perspective, thinking early on and encouraging entrepreneurs early on to keep the end in mind, um, building that target product profile, and, uh, and from our perspective, how can, uh, if there um, needs to be an in-kind investment to help bridge that, uh, uh, that that's how we would uh, become involved with early stage projects um, that could ultimately lead to that type of channel. Are we, and this wasn't a question I sort of brought up, but are we looking, we're talking about Alfion and, and private pay and this sort of being yet another evolutionary step in uh, in healthcare. And this morning, Dick Lynch mentioned that the ACA actually is is adding to the private pay potential because of those high deductibles. Over the next ten years, do you, do you see sales channels changing like this even more? Is Alfion just the tip of the iceberg? We're going to see new ways of getting products into the hands of physicians. Well, you know, if you think about the high deductibles, everybody's in the private pay channel, whether they know it or not, right? So the patients and the, and the doctors are now in the business of collecting whatever, the first ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 privately. So that's going to accelerate across a whole bunch of specialties, this conversion to private pay that Bill was talking about earlier. How about you, Bill? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and if you think about what we need is efficient and effective health care, honestly. And, there, you know, it's so complex, layers of, of complexity. But I think the private pay, in the private pay aspect of healthcare, we're kind of breaking out of the conventional, layered, somewhat inefficient, uh, third-party reimbursed with all of the, the uh, compliance uh, challenges and building relationships and, and efficient decision-making. And I think it'll make, it'll, it'll be better healthcare provided to the patient, um, and, uh, and hence, and it'll be more efficient, actually. And so overall, it's better for everybody. Right now, it's, it's, I love it, the fact that it's still a bit controversial because it's new and disruptive enough. And if it wasn't a bit controversial, controversial it would, we wouldn't be doing enough, okay? So we're trying to move the market and segment it in different ways. And there's not one way to do, you know, to provide proper health care across all sectors and for all types of diseases. But in the lifestyle area, where, where a portion of our energy has been focused for decades, this is a pretty novel, appropriate, efficient, effective way to, to, uh, to go to the next stage. I, I, I recall when the, we first started some of the private pay activities, uh, especially around cataract surgery, the regulators in Washington we're very, very concerned, very concerned that unscrupulous surgeons were going to take advantage of patients. I, I just have so much more respect for the marketplace of that. If, if you, maybe all, maybe all the, 
dumb cataract patients that can be taken advantage of are down in Edenton, Georgia, where I'm from. But I, I can tell you right now, and you talk to any physician in the local market who's out there competing for these p- private dollars, the marketplace works just fine, and, and it is more efficient. I don't think there's any question about it. And just final question. We have uh, two, two minutes and 50 seconds. Uh, we heard an interesting point of view from uh, Valiant at the, at the keynote, sort of talking about where innovation should come from, the source of innovation. We are seeing more strategic investments coming in at that lower level. Are they, how, uh, how viable a, an, alter, a, an alternative source of funding are they for an early stage startup these days? Certainly more than perhaps they were been, might have been before, <clears throat> but are strategics really investing in those early stage ventures? I don't know, Bill, if you... Well, you know, I th- we have a follow-up panel, and that'd be a great question for the follow-up panel as well. I, I think it's uh, it's uh, a very uh, it's a growing and very active area, and it makes so much sense. We talked about how, especially a really early-stage idea with a you know maybe a brilliant investor that needs half a million dollars or two hundred fifty thousand dollars to try to get the patent issued and and build a, a prototype, you know. Uh, strategic or corporate dollars could could really help move that along and I know a number of the uh, leading companies in the space and they're actively engaged at early and later stage as well and so I think it, it's part of the efficiency of the market ultimately if conventional venture investing as a venture capital is a bit harder to access other sources of capital as long as the project is worthy and, and the person is amazing, okay, that capital can be, can be there, and the strategics are, are uh, actively engaged in that. Andy, do you see it the same way? I do. I, I, think, uh, I think just to add a little more is it really has to be aligned with the vision of the, the company or so totally break through that it's worth a shot. But in my, in my experience, most of the times, this new idea that you reach out to a corporate player for it has to align completely with their vision going forward. Matt, you have about 50 seconds where we're going to upset the masters of the universe. So, um, and, and, and again, it highlights their early discussions with potential exit partners, um, again, what they're looking for, kind of Bill and Andy uh, said, and, um, and whether that's uh, cash coming in from a potential pharma partner uh, or, again, for these entrepreneurs that are just trying to be creative and how they can move something forward. Uh, to proof of concept or to phase two or approval, um, it, creative ways to leverage uh, in-house manufacturing or GLP toxicology um, and, and patching it together in some way. And again, it's not a one, one either or. Again, I think there's um, models for um, having multiple, multiple types of investors involved. And as we said before, the VCs, the pharma involved early, uh, certainly helping to direct the ultimate uh, end goal. Um, and from a CRO side uh, as well. So I think there's ways to uh, all synergize to move new products forward. Great. All right, Matt, Andy, and Bill, thanks for joining the podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that glimpse into last week's OIS at Askers. Again, it was a great event, over 400 people. I had a great time meeting many of you, and uh, we were all very happy with the outcome. Thanks uh, particularly to Bill Link, Andy Corley, and Matt Chapin for going along with my podcast shtick on stage. Uh, I thought it went well. I had a great time interviewing those three and uh, got some positive comments uh, afterwards. 
Finally, uh, thank you all uh, for uh, listening to the OIS podcast. Uh, we've uh, had a great deal of fun over the past nine months. Uh, we created this podcast for the uh, OIS community. And as I stated on stage last week, we'd really like to tell more stories. So if you have uh, an update or uh, some information or a story that you'd like to share, email me at tom at healthogy.com. And healthogy is spelled like the word health with E-G-Y at the end of it, and uh, would very much love to hear from you. So uh, tune in next week for another tale of innovation, and it's uh, never too early to start thinking about our next OIS at AAO, which will take place on November 12th in Las Vegas. So we hope to see you in Las Vegas. OIS is now accepting applications for presenting companies. Share your technology and clinical data with over 800 industry executives, investors, and key opinion-leading ophthalmologists. To be considered for the Ophthalmology Innovation Showcase, apply online at www.ois.net forward slash application.